morning, Rocky P. Wow, wasn't that an amazing time of worship together? I'm telling you, I love Christmas carols, um, but I love them especially in church, you know, because when you sing them somewhere else, it's often just this feeling of the season thing. But when you get together, it's about Jesus, right? It's like we get to worship him and these incredible uh, songs that tell the story, not just of his birth, but of his life, his death, his resurrection, his return. And uh, then I just had to come out and hear that special. I had to, last night I was backstage, and it was like, no, no, I, I need to be down in front. I was so moved, and so it's like, well, that's a quick transition here, but uh, I, I don't want to be backstage to hear it. Like, I want to, I want to be out with you to hear it. Right? And uh, man, it's so moving. The words of that song, incredible, just incredible. Right, don't you want to be the first to come out and hear his voice, whether it's uh, on the waters in the cloud, and uh, to listen, to follow him, amen. amen. So I'm, I'm excited to be here this Christmas week, and I wanna welcome those of you who are also joining us online uh, today, those of you outside. We're gonna go into our time of teaching right now, and this kind of last weekend before Christmas, and uh, so inside your program is that, that uh, message note sheet that we use every week, and for those of you regulars, you'll know that, but for those of you brand new, you may not, you'll definitely need it. For those online, you can either click on the top or the bottom, depending on the format, and download that. You'll definitely want that. And if you're ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. So Father, we're just so thankful to be here in your house on this day. This day, we kind of kick off the week. We celebrate your birth, and Lord, as we're gonna see today, we can't celebrate your birth without celebrating your death, uh, through which you came to bring us these gifts and you died to deliver them. And Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would be here. Lord, we, we, we're just conscious that we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus, that the power of the Lord is here. And so Lord, we come today with great expectation. We ask that as you open the eyes of your disciples after the resurrection, so they could understand the scriptures, we ask that your spirit would be here to do that for us today, to open our eyes, to understand the scriptures, and that we would be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today in, uh, in a small town that's outside a big city. And this is a big day for this young family. It was just a little over a month ago, almost a month and a half ago, that they had their first child, a baby boy. And, uh, and this is a big day for them because it's the first day they're, they're taking him to the big city six miles away. And uh, the city is high elevation um, and it's, uh, it's cool. And so they're gonna bundle up their little boy and uh, head for the city for the very first time. And as they enter into the city, as usual, it's busy. Um, this is a famous city, and not only do you have all the people that live here and work here, and the streets are full of them, but you also have tourists. Men and women come from all over the world to visit this famous city, to take in all its sights and sounds. And uh, for them on this day, they have a very special destination. They're heading for the large campus that kind of dominates the city. And as they, they, they kind of emerge onto this campus uh, through the entry, um, the, the inside of this, this huge uh, public square is packed as usual. And uh, they, they know where they're headed. Um, they have a particular destination. But as they pick their way through the crowd, there's, there's an old man standing at the back. And uh, he has gray hair, a long gray beard, and, uh, and he's eyeing them. And at first they don't, they don't realize they're being under surveillance. But originally they do, and they pick up on this, that this old man is making his way through the crowd towards them. And what they don't realize is they're about to experience an encounter that they will never forget. Well, today we are continuing in this series this Christmas weekend. It's called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And for those of you who are new, 
um, a special welcome. But this is a, a series, it's, it's sort of an in-depth series, and every week I like to just give a little synopsis for those of you who are just joining us. It's an in-depth uh, study of the life and, uh, uh, of the, from uh, a letter of the, from the Apostle Paul, one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers that have come to Jesus about three years before, uh, actually through his ministry and his team. And they live in a very important uh, strategic Roman city uh, in the south of Greece that's called Corinth. And so we call this letter the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, if you were here last week, we entered into this new section of the letter that starts at chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles and you have your apps, we're gonna continue there today. Uh, there in your note sheet is a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, Communion, the Backstory. And so uh, just like last week, if you were last week, we did this, we're gonna need a little bit more backstory to this passage than normal to understand it. And so we, we kind of need the backstory of two different things. First of all, we need to understand this very special ceremony that as Christians we call in different circles, we call it communion. Uh, sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. From those of you maybe from more a Catholic or liturgical background, you may be used to it being referred to as the Holy Eucharist. Um, but we're gonna need some background to, to this ceremony, and then we're also gonna need some background to, to what's happening uh, in the church of Corinth. So if you were here last week, you remember that in this new section that we're entering, it starts at chapter 11, and it goes through chapter 14. So it's four chapters, um, but it deals with three specific issues. And they all have to do with, with kind of how the church is approaching their uh, kind of public services, their, their large group gatherings, we would call, when they gather. And remember, in the early church, uh, they didn't have big buildings like this to meet. And they're meeting in homes, usually large homes of maybe some of the wealthier people, like a Roman estate. And so, so when they were coming together, uh, these four chapters all address issues around these gatherings, when they're gathering as a church to worship. And so the second, the second issue that we're dealing with today has to do with communion, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Eucharist. We're gonna do some background on that and then what they were doing, how they were abusing this very special ceremony. So let's talk about uh, kind of background for communion. So if some of you all know this, you'll be up to speed. For some of you, this will be new. Is it the very last night of Jesus' life, uh, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Now, the Passover was a very important meal that Israel will celebrate every year to remind them of the greatest deliverance in their history. When God freed them from slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses and led them out and they became a nation. And so, so God told them at that time, every year at this time, you're to celebrate this famous, uh, this, this service that reminds you of this great uh, act of deliverance. And so ever since then, Jews have celebrated that, still do that today. And, uh, and so it was at this, this, uh, this uh, last Passover that Jesus took some of the elements from the Passover meal and he filled them with new meaning and significance. And so after dinner, he took the bread, the unleavened bread that was part of the Passover meal, and he, he said, this bread represents uh, my body that's gonna be broken for you. And then he took one of the cups of wine after dinner, and he said, uh, this cup represents my blood that's going to be shed for you. And so, so what I want you to catch is the communion service is, grows out of the Passover. The Passover was what we call in theology a type. Uh, it was uh, an event in the Old Testament that was prophetic of what a greater salvation, that would, what a greater Passover that would one day come through the greater lamb that would come. And, and so Jesus fills it with new meaning and he said, so as often as you do this, you proclaim my death and all the gifts that come through my death until I come. And so. Um, and so in the early church, from the earliest days, the church began celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper. Now, there, there's a lot we don't know about this. We don't really know how often they celebrated. Sometimes people will ask me here at Rocky Peak, well, now, some churches celebrate communion every week, and some do it once a year, and you do it about every six weeks. Like, like why do we do that? And what I'll explain is, well, the Bible doesn't really give us the details 
on how often to do that. So that's why different churches will approach it differently. Um, so we don't know exactly how often, we don't know exactly how they would, uh, you know, what, what elements they would use. But one thing that we do seem to have a lot of evidence for is that in the early church, when they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, it was in the context of an entire meal. Uh, just like the Passover was an entire meal. And so, so we call this, they call this a love feast, or a agape feast, okay, in Greek, agape feast. And so, so that's the background that we need to understand for the Lord's Supper. Now, let's talk about the backstory we need to understand for what's happening at the Church of Corinth. So what's happening in the Church of Corinth is they're making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, one of the things it symbolizes, we'll talk about today, is the unity of the body of Christ. That though we have come from all different backgrounds, different races, different religions, different socioeconomic, that in Christ, all those barriers are broken down as we create this new community of the king that will live with him forever. And communion is designed to symbolize that, as we'll see. And the Corinthians were making a mockery of that because in some way when they were meeting, they were dividing into apparently different socioeconomic classes to celebrate communion. Now, we're not sure exactly how this worked, but I want to give you two of the top options to give you a feel. Like in a, in a large Roman estate, if you've ever been there or been to Pompeii, you may have seen this, but like in a Roman estate, you'd have different rooms of the house. And there was a room set aside for dining, and it was called the triclinium. So scholars believe that what was happening was one of two things were happening. That, that either the rich were coming early. So remember, the early church would meet on Sunday, most likely, the day of the resurrection. We have evidence that the church of Corinth was meeting on Sunday. And so they would meet on a Sunday. And Sunday, in the Roman world, was a, day, was a work day. So the rich, wouldn't have to, uh, the rich wouldn't have to work, you know, but the poor, well, that's a work day. And so there's some scholars think that what was happening is so the rich were coming early. And they were celebrating like a big feast, you know, a wealthy feast in the triclinium uh, because they were the wealthy and they were celebrating the Lord's Supper there. And then, then later in the day, when, ever, when the poor would get off work or the slaves would be released for the evening, they would come, but they wouldn't be admitted into the triclinium. They would eat in a different part of the, of, the, uh, of, of the home, maybe in the entryway or what was called the atrium, and they would have a very meager meals. Now, now catch this, in Roman culture, this was very typical. Roman culture was extremely stratified by social classes. So if you went to a, like to a, a, a large party, the rich would hang out, they would often have one menu, the poor would hang out and have a different menu. And so what's happening is it seems that in the church of Corinth, they're kind of, they're like, they're treating it's like it's any other dinner party. And instead of celebrating the unity of the body, the rich are getting stuffed and even drunk at times where the poor are running without. So that's one scenario. The other potential scenario is that they were actually coming at the same time, but when they came, they were separating into rich and poor uh, for, and similar. And so Paul says, hey, this is a tragedy. I mean, this, this whole meal separates the unity of the body and you're making a mockery of it. And so that's the background that we need to understand to understand this passage. So if you have your Bibles now, we're gonna go to the next section that's called uh, uh, Christ Culture and the Cross Communion, the Crisis. So Paul's gonna describe this crisis. So we're gonna pick it up in verse 20 uh, or verse 17 where we left off last week. And he says in verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. <laughs> All right, so um, I want you to look back at verse two. In verse two, and I think I might have just a little too much going on up here uh, sound-wise. We've got a little bit of feedback. Okay, so um, in verse two, uh, this is how he started this whole new section. I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on. So he starts on a positive note last week, but now he's gonna lower the boom. And in verse uh, 17, he said, in the following directives, I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good. Like it's like better for you not to meet. He said in the first place, this is the first issue, he's gonna bring up other issues later, but in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, remember this home setting, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. 
So he says, I, I hear, uh, the, I'm getting reports. Remember, he's in Ephesus. He's 350 miles away, but there have been visitors from Corinth who've come and filled him in on some of the things that are going on. And he says, I hear that when you're gathering, there are divisions. Now, he's not talking about the kind of divisions we saw earlier in this letter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. He's talking about these physical divisions when they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, as we'll see. And now Paul is gonna get sarcastic, and I always love that because it gives me some authorization in my own life. And in verse 19, he says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval, right? That, that yeah, of course you have to separate to show who's most spiritual. And he says, so then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper was a ceremony that spoke of Jesus' sacrifice, of love, of unity, and he says, that's not at all what you're doing. He says, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. Remember that kind of layout of the Roman estate? And as a result, one person remains hungry like a poor person, uh, and another gets drunk. Right? They're in this, this room with this big banquet going on, all this food and drink, and some are actually having too much to drink. And that's why in communion services across the world, we give such little cups today to prevent this from happening. He says, so he challenges, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Like imagine you're coming together and you have the rich over here eating so much, they're getting drunk and the poor here, not even enough to eat. Like you're making mockery of the body of Christ. And he says, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What should I say? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. And so now he's gonna take them back to that first, uh, first uh, Lord's Supper event, that last night of Jesus' life. Now this is interesting, just a quick little sidebar. In the, in the Bible, we have four accounts of the Last Supper. The first three come in what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is the fourth one in 1 Corinthians. But what's interesting is you tend to assume that the account in the synoptic gospels would be earlier, right? Because they come at the beginning of the New Testament. But the reality is 1 Corinthians was written before Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So this is actually the earliest account that we have of the Lord's Supper. And so he says, he said, I received from the Lord, verse 23, what I also passed on to you, you know, when he was with them, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, that unleavened bread of Passover, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So remember, they're having a Passover. The Passover is what they would do in remembrance of the great deliverance. Now he's saying, from now on, we're doing, we're, in, we're filling with new meaning. Do this in remembrance of me from this point on. And he says in verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is the what? What does he say next? It's the what? It's the new covenant. Can you underline that? I want you to really like box it, mark it up, pretend Dre's teaching. Um, <laughs> This is gonna be very important for later on. So I'll refer to it later on. And I'm gonna say, hey, remember? So remember. All right. So this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So what is he talking about this new covenant? We're gonna come back to this later. But when Israel first came out of Egypt, God delivered them with the Passover. They traveled to Mount Sinai, and there at Mount Sinai, three months after their deliverance, they entered into a covenant, a very special relationship with God, much like a marriage, where, where God proposed, they said, I do, and, and, they, and God gave them the rules of their relationship, the Ten Commandments. And if you remember that Moses went up on the mountain and God actually gave him the tablets of stone with these 10 basic rules of relationship that as Jesus said, we're all about loving God and loving one another. But if you remember, Israel was not able to keep those commandments. They, they broke the covenant with their God. Um, and they, the reason was they all had a fallen human nature like you and I. And so God could show them the path to life. They did not have the capacity to keep it. 
And as a result of that, Israel would eventually, hundreds of years later, lose the land. And they would go into exile in Babylon. And when they were in exile, their big question, is God done with us? Has he divorced us forever as an unfaithful bride? And through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah, God said, no, there will one day come when I will return to you as my people and I will forgive your sins and I will write my law, not on tablets of stone, but on your heart. I'll change you from the inside out. And that's what Jesus was referring to. He's saying that what he's about to do is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. And we'll look at that later. And so he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and all it brings to us, all it means until he comes. And so whenever we celebrate communion, we're looking back at what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, but we're looking forward to when he returns again. And he says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood. So he just told them why this ceremony is so precious, why it's so holy, why it's so high. He said, so anyone who eats it in an unworthy manner. Now this is important in the old King James version, it used to say unworthily. And this is why many people have thought, like when we go to communion, you gotta search your soul, is your heart, is there anything wrong I've done? I, like there's a fear factor. But notice it's not about us being unworthy. We're all unworthy. It's about eating it in an unworthy manner, which is what they were doing. And so he says, so uh, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So when we gather together as a church, as we've been learning this whole series, as Paul said in chapter five, when you gather in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord is there, like when we gather, the Lord is with us and when we celebrate communion, the Lord is with us. We receive his body and his blood. It's a high and holy ceremony. And so uh, he says, so that verse 20, so everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, without realizing what's happening here, they drink judgment on themselves. There will actually be a discipline from God. And he says, that is why, so interesting, he says, that is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for death. I don't know if you remember this, but in the early church, very early on, the church of Jerusalem, uh, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira in chapter five of Acts. And uh, they brought, they sold a parcel of land and it belonged to them and they could either kept the money or given the money, but they brought it to the apostles to give for the poor in their church, but they pretended that they gave all their amount. So it wasn't the issue of giving all their amount, that is their money. They could have kept it, they could have given part of it. It was up but they pretended to be hypocritical. And I don't know if you remember, but, Paul's, but uh, Peter said to them, why have you agreed together to test the Lord and to lie to the Holy Spirit? And they fell dead. And so we're seeing here in the early church at times where we're, like God was protecting his church and the purity in some unique ways. And so he says, hey, this is serious business, what, what's happening there. And he says in verse 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, as we're paying attention, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way, when the Lord brings us kind of discipline, we are being disciplined so we will not be finally condemned with the world. So the intention of this discipline is restorative for us to, to realize we're wrong, get back on track to repent so when Jesus comes, we won't be condemned with the rest of the world. And so Paul says, so then my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And so he's not talking about, often in communion services like we all do, all partake at the same time. He's not talking about that. He's, what he's talking about is you can't have the rich over here separated having their Lord's Supper and then, then the poor over here having their Lord's Supper. No, this is something we need to do together as a whole community. 
And so he says in verse 34, so anyone who's hungry should eat something at home. And this is why we provide donuts out on the plaza <laughs> just to make sure you don't get carried away when it comes to communion, because we have small portions, all right? So he says, uh, anyone who's hungry should eat something at home <clears throat> so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. This overeating, the overdrinking. He says, and when I come, I'll give further direction. So he's planning to come at some point. He'll probably be there in about six months. He doesn't know that now. But he, he'll say, I'll give you more when I get there. But, uh, you know, uh, scrolls are expensive. So I'm going to stop there, all right? So that's the passage. Now, what I want to do on this Christmas weekend is I want to highlight two powerful principles uh, about the birth and the death of Jesus that we see represented in this communion ceremony. So, so let me set this up. Before we jump into the principles, let me set it up. One thing that has always bothered me, and it happens often even in Christian circles, is that when we come to Christmas, we focus just on the birth of Jesus. And then when we come to Easter, we focus just on the death of Jesus. But the reality is that Jesus was born to die, as we're gonna to see today. And, and for me, uh, as a follower of Jesus, uh, for us as a church, I want us to understand that when we come to the manger, we are also coming to the cross. Yes. That we can't separate the birth of Jesus from the death of Jesus. And it's interesting, you see, even in our culture, we're so far away from celebrating Christ at Christmas, right? We're so far away. But even if you go back 10, 20 years, like, there, it was like people would celebrate the birth, but when the Easter would come, not celebrate the death. That we like the baby in the manger. He's very cute. He's unthreatening. The Christ of Easter and the resurrection is Lord of the world, and he demands something from you. So even in our kind of Christian culture, there was a, hey, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Not so much the death. What we're going to see today is you can't separate it. What we're going to see today is that Jesus was born to bring us the gifts of salvation. And he died to deliver those gifts. And you can't separate the birth from the death. And this is something we see even in the gospel accounts but we, of his birth, but we often miss it because we're so focused on the other events. And so today we're gonna explore that together. So there in your note sheet is a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, the Gifts of Christmas. And so, so let's begin with this first principle that I just mentioned, that Jesus came to give gifts. That we're gonna see is that the reason Jesus was born was to bring gifts uh, to give gifts of salvation. Now, like I said, that when we come to the Christmas story, that often we focus on the parts that we know best that have been celebrated the most of our culture. So we come to Christmas, we celebrate uh, the, the, the pregnancy of Mary, the virgin birth, the trip to Jerusalem, the census that was given, riding uh, on the donkey, uh, the sheep kneeling down in the manger. That's not really part of it. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, the wise men, that's not really part of it either. They come later, but we just crammed it all together. Uh, we, we celebrate that and Rudolph, and it all kind of runs together, right? <laughs> But in the process, we miss these hints that are there at the birth of the impending death. And I want to give you a couple examples of that. Like on your note sheet, the first one is from Matthew's gospel. And so let me set it up. So in Matthew's gospel, we're told that when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, he was very upset. Um, he knew he wasn't the father. And whatever her story was, he, he knew, you know, he wasn't buying it. Uh, we're told he's a very noble guy. And in Jewish, Jewish culture, it would require him to divorce her. So they were betrothed, which is kind of like our engagement, but it's much more official. So that in Jewish culture, once you're betrothed, if you break it, you have to divorce. Like it's official divorce. And so he's going to try to, you know, divorce her quietly. But if you remember, the angel comes to him in a dream. And he says, listen, no, the story is true, that 
that what is growing in her is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and she's going to have a baby boy. And, and as the father, step-in father, as the stepfather, it's going to be your job to name the boy, right? And so, so here's the name. His name's going to be Jesus. And that's the Old Testament version, same word as Joshua. And they both mean Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. And so here's what the angel said. He said, uh, she will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save, remember, Yahweh is salvation, he will save his people from their what? Sins. Sins. Now, when you and I hear that, our minds immediately go to the cross. That would not have happened in the first century. And so what I want you to do is we're gonna take off our 21st century lenses. We're gonna put on our first century lenses and how Joseph would have heard this, how every Jew would have heard this. In the first century, Israel was under the boot heel of Rome. They were the latest in a long line of oppressors that went back to Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and the Seleucids, and now Rome. And if you would ask them, why are we under enemy oppression? The answer would be because of our sins as a nation. When we rebelled against God, we were shipped off to, to Babylon, and in a sense, we've been in exile ever since. Yes, we're back in our land, but we are under enemy oppression. It's because of our sins. Well, one day we're looking for a savior who will come and the nation will turn back to God and he will live, lead us to a great deliverance. Are you with me? That's how first century Jews would hear this. And so when, when uh, Joseph hears this message, what's going to run through his mind or anyone who hear it was the great king from the line of David would come who's gonna lead, overthrow Rome. He's gonna save us from our sins. But of course, as the story goes on, we learn that's not how it's gonna work. That the way he's gonna save us from our sins is through the cross. And in retrospect, we can look back and see that now. But what I want you to catch is at the very Mention of his birth from the very beginning, his death was in, the, was in the future. An availed way that it was there for those who had eyes to see. Uh, second, second example. You know, today we started the day with a story of this young couple. that they've, uh, They live about six miles outside of a major city in a small town. And uh, about a month and a half ago, they had their first child, uh, a little boy, and today's a big day because they're bundling them up, taking them to the big city. This is my version of what happened, the account that we have in Acts, I mean, in Luke chapter two. We're told in Luke chapter two that 40 days after Jesus' birth, so about a month and a half, that his parents, Mary and Joseph, or you know, stepfather, but you know that Mary and Joseph are gonna bundle up their little one and they're gonna go for six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to the big city. And when they arrive in this bustling city with people all over the world, major cosmopolitan city, they're gonna head for the large campus, the temple campus that dominates the city. And uh, for those of you who've been here at Rocky Peak a long time, we've talked about this before, but we have so many new people the last couple of years that, that I, when you hear temple, I don't know what comes to your mind, but if, you're, if you've never studied this, I can guarantee you, you have a wrong image. I think we often think of a temple kind of like a church. The, the temple in Jerusalem, I want you to catch this, it was the largest building in the world at its time. It was bigger than the pyramids. The temple campus was more like a medieval fortress than it was a church, a church campus. That when you would go through those massive stone walls, and by the way, those stone walls that were all around it, that in order to build the temple uh, and to create this huge campus, Herod the Great had built up this huge retaining wall so he could create a big platform on top for the temple grounds. And to give you an idea of the size of this, 
when we go to Israel, we go underground to see the remains of that retaining wall. And when we go under there, we point out one particular stone that's an example. It's the biggest stone there. You know how much that one stone of that foundation, of that, all of, that one stone weighs 570 tons. I mean, it's like from me to that wall over there. And it's this high and that deep. And it weighs 570 tons. Tons, and that was one of the stones. This is the biggest one. One of the stones in the retaining wall for the temple complex. The temple complex was three football fields long, five football fields wide, and in feast days, the open-air plaza was big enough to hold 100,000 people. And so on this day, I want you to imagine this young couple, uh, a month and a half into their being parents, um, Jesus not even sleeping through the night yet. They're trying it, but it's not working. <laughs> they, they, they come into this massive complex and as they're walking through, the reason they're there is because Mary's gonna go through her purification rites after childbirth and, and it's there they're gonna dedicate Jesus to the Lord, their firstborn son. And as they're there, I want you to picture this. To me, this is like a scene out of the Lord of the Rings. So yeah, I want you to picture Lord of the Rings. Not this current Amazon thing. <laughs> Let's just drop that. No, no. Picture Lord of the Rings, right? Medieval like castle, the young couple with this baby. And remember, they don't know how the story is gonna end. And as they're walking through the crowd, they see a grizzled old man. I picture him, gray hair, gray beard. Who knows, maybe he's bald, we don't know. But he comes through the crowd and he's making his way towards them. And when he finally gets to them, he says, can I hold your baby? And they sense he's a, a godly man. And so they say yes. And so they take their little bundle and they put him in his arms. And as he does, it's like straight out of Lord of the Rings. Like he begins to bless God with these amazing prophetic words about this son, about how that he's gonna be a light to the Gentiles, the salvation of your people, Israel. Messianic words are coming out of his mouth. Now, who is this guy? And when he gets done, he, he says, I wanna bless all of you. And he speaks this powerful word of prophecy that to me always reminds me out of something, out of Lord of the Rings. Can I tell you something? Lord of the Rings has taught me how to read the Bible. <laughs> we get way too familiar with that. We, move, we lose the mystery. We lose the romance. This incredible scene. Imagine yourself, young couple taking, and all of a sudden this old man comes up and he begins to prophesy over the sun in these veiled terms. It's powerful. And this is what he says. He says, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he looks in Mary's eyes and he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And of course, he was right. Because 33 years later, Jesus, now a full-grown man, the baby has grown up, and the prophecy is about to be fulfilled. Then he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on that Sunday, Palm Sunday, and he goes to the temple, catches the same temple where he was dedicated 33 years before. And he walks into that huge open-air plaza just like 33 years before, and he does this prophetic demonstration of cleansing the house of God. And tensions are rising. And on that Thursday night, he will celebrate the Passover with his disciples and he will institute the Lord's Supper. And that night he will be arrested and he will be pierced and he will be put on a Roman cross and his mother will be standing there and a sword will pierce her soul. And what I want you to catch 
is that for those who have eyes to see that Jesus' birth was also about his death. That this is that Jesus came to die. He was born to die. And the way I'm putting it today, who is born to deliver these gifts of salvation, as Matthew said, to save you from your sins. He was, he was born to bring us gifts of salvation, but then he died to deliver those gifts. And so the question is, on this Christmas weekend, like what, what are the gifts that he came to deliver? And that leads us to number two. The second principle is that the Lord's Supper reminds us of these gifts. He was born to bring the gifts. He died to deliver them. And the Lord's Supper is the ceremony that Jesus has given us to remember these gifts that he died to deliver. And you say, well, what are those gifts? Well, when you read the accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, when you read the account of 1 Corinthians 11, of the Last Supper, what we see is there are, uh, there are three gifts that Jesus was born to bring, three gifts he died to deliver. And the first gift is the most obvious one. And this is the gift that I think for many of us, if we've been followers of Jesus any length of time or just even been in church, but we understand. And the first gift is for the gift of the forgiveness of our sins. And, and this is the one that's the most obvious. And in a sense, this is the one that in one sense is the most important because it opens the door for the other two. Without this one, there is no other two. It's impossible. And so this is the, the one that, say, in Matthew's gospel that he emphasizes. He says, when, when Jesus gives out the, the, the cup in Matthew's gospel, this is how Matthew records it, this is the blood of the covenant. Notice that word covenant, but he doesn't mention new covenant. We'll get to that in a minute. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the what? forgiveness of sins. And so we understand this, that when we come to communion, in a sense, we're sharing in the blood of Christ. We'll, we'll read that in a few minutes, that, that Paul will say those exact words. We're, we're sharing, we're drinking in, in a sense, the blood of Christ. We're taking in the body of Christ. And, and through that, we are forgiven. Through his death for us on the cross, symbolized by this meal, we're reminding ourselves that, that there's a path to res restoration in our relationship with God, that through Jesus, our vertical relationship with God can be restored, not based on anything we have done, but based on what he did for us, right? So, so the first gift is this gift of forgiveness. Again, the most obvious. The second gift is much more subtle. You, you kind of need eyes to see it. But it, but it comes through this reference to the new covenant. So we saw this today in 1 Corinthians 11. When Paul gives his description, Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Uh, Luke says that as well. There in your note sheet, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so the, the question is, what does he mean by new covenant? And we talked about this, how Israel came out of Egypt, they entered into the first covenant, they blew that covenant, they went into exile. The question is, is there hope for us? Well, God has God written us off? And the prophet Jeremiah writes, after they have gone into exile, he writes there on your note sheet in chapter 31. And he says, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make, what, what's the next word? A new covenant. That's what Jesus is quoting. That's what Jesus is referring to. What Jesus is saying is the, the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah that I'm initiating by my blood, the sacrifice of my life. And he says, he says, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. This is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, says Yahweh. And then catch this, says, this is the new covenant. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. In other words, the the, the, the laws will no longer be written on tablets of stone. They'll be 
written on their hearts. In other words, God will change us from the inside out. And of course, the key to this is the gift of the Spirit. And that's number two. That communion speaks of the new covenant and the, one of the key ingredients of the new covenant is the gift of the Spirit. And in Ezekiel, he talks about this. He talks about the forgiveness of sins, but then this gift of the Spirit that will change us from the inside out. In Ezekiel uh, 36, God speaks and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Turn the page. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. This speaks of forgiveness. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols and I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you and I'll remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Just there will come a time when I'll just tell you the path to life. I will change you from the inside out. And the key will be my spirit that I give you to lead you and guide you and empower you to a whole new life. And you remember the last night before Jesus was arrested, remember how much he talked about the spirit. He said, I'm leaving but I'm sending another comforter. And when he comes, he'll lead you into all truth. The second gift that communion is designed to remind us of is the gift of the new covenant, the gift of the spirit. But there's a third gift that's perhaps the most subtle and one that we're probably least familiar with, but it's one that Paul refers to uh, and, and why he's so upset with the Corinthians. The third gift is the gift of the new community. So when Jesus came, I want you to catch this. This is so important because we've missed this so much in American Christianity. When Jesus came, he came to not only restore our vertical relationship with God, he came to restore our horizontal relationship with one another and to create a new people, a new race, if you will, that will live with him forever. This race where we're learning how to walk out a life of love together and a, a new community where the old prejudices and barriers that have separated the human race from the very beginning, whether it's race or whether it's religion or whether it's socioeconomic, that those are broken down. And so communion is designed to speak to that. And you say, well, how? Well, in the early church, when they'd celebrate communion, they would use a common loaf or a common piece of bread. And so because we're all drinking from a common cup, we're all drinking from a common loaf, it speaks of though we are many, we are all one in Christ. And Paul had talked about this in the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians 10. You may remember this from 1 Corinthians 10. He was warning them against idolatry. He was telling them why you can't go to the temples and celebrate the feast, the feast with the gods there and then come to the Lord's Supper and separate the feast with Jesus, right? And in that context, he says there on your note sheet in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, is not the cup of thanksgiving. So he's talking about communion. And by the way, guess what the word for uh, thanksgiving is in Greek? You probably won't guess, but the, the, the word is eucharistia. And this is where we get the word eucharist, the holy eucharist, the cup of thanksgiving. And he said, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, notice that, which we, eucharisteo, isn't the cup of eucharistia for which we give eucharisteo, for which we give thanks. He said, isn't a participation, and the word in Greek is that famous word koinonia, the sharing. He said, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a sharing in the blood of Christ. Aren't we, when we celebrate communion, aren't we sharing together, drinking in the blood of Christ? He said, and is not the bread that we break a participation, again, koinonia, a sharing in the body of Christ 
taking Christ in, so to speak. And he says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And this is why Paul is so upset. When you are gathering, you're not separating the Lord's Supper, you're celebrating a Corinthian dinner party. You're following your culture. The rich are eating together, the poor are starving together. You're living out your culture, you're not living out kingdom. He says, so when, you, when we gather, this, this ceremony speaks of our unity. We need to be together. We need to be breaking down those barriers between rich and poor. The community of Jesus is where we break down the, 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 break down the barrier of black or white. It's where we break down the barrier between Hispanics and Asians. The body of Christ is where we break down all the barriers. No, in this house, we don't have barriers. There's neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. In the body of Christ, we break down those barriers. And Paul says, what in the world are you doing celebrating the Lord's Supper and having the gall to, to break the unity of the body? And so these are the three, I'm calling them the three gifts of Christmas. These gifts that who's born to bring, died to deliver. The gift of forgiveness of sins, our vertical relationship with God restored. The gift of the spirit, our internal life restored. The gift of community, the horizontal body restored, community restored. And so as we, as, we, uh, as we wrap this up there in your note sheet, I have one final question for you. And I don't have a lot of time to develop this. I wish I had more, but I'm just gonna trust. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it out there and I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you if there's something here for you. But the question is very simple is, are you unwrapping the gifts of Christmas? We've seen today that Jesus was born to bring these gifts of salvation. He died to deliver these three gifts. And so, so are you unwrapping? So this week, chances are many, if not most of us, are gonna be going to certain kinds of gathering with family or friends where we'll be exchanging gifts. But of course, that a gift isn't meaningful until we unwrap it, right? Like when you receive a gift, you have to unwrap it. You have to open it up. You have to take it out. And then you have to use it. Right? Or put it in a pile for white elephant gift, you know? But <laughs> let's, let's, just, let's just go with it. With, let's just assume you like the gift, all right? So give you, that it, like it doesn't, like someone can give us a gift, but that, that gift doesn't make our life better in any way until we unwrap it, take it out. Wow, this is great. Put it on, start to wear it, rev it up, pull the cord, you know, start, whatever the thing is, that, that gift isn't of any use to us until we unwrap it. And so the same way I wanna, are you unwrapping the gifts of salvation Jesus came to bring? So let me talk, first of all, the first gift is the gift of forgiveness. So let me talk to those of you who have not yet given your life to Jesus. You know, maybe you've been coming for a while. Maybe you're online, it's the very first time. But maybe it's the first time you've really understood what communion is all about and why this ceremony is so important and, and what it speaks of. And it's the first time you've realized why Jesus died to give you this new life, to give you the gift of his spirit, to, to give you this new community to walk with together. And, and for whatever reason, today it's really clicking and so you've heard this gift. Here's the gift that, that God's given you, this gift of forgiveness that opens the door to all other gifts. But the, but the question is, have you received that gift? And it's today the day you're ready to bow the knee to your true king and to give him your life and to turn from your sin and to receive him. And in this gift of forgiveness, it opens the door to the gift of the spirit and the gift of community. For those of us here that maybe 
We're, 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 we're followers of Jesus. We've received this gift of forgiveness. My question is, are you unwrapping the gift of the Spirit in your life? You know, the gift of the Holy Spirit is one of the greatest gifts of salvation. He's come to lead us, to guide us, to communicate the presence of God in our lives, to speak and lead and empower us to turn from darkness, to walk new lives, the lives we were created to live. And so to, you know, it's possible, like the Corinthians are a great example, to have received the gift of forgiveness, but they're not listening and following the Spirit. They're still living like their culture. And as a result, their lives are a mess. And, and so, so have you received the gift of forgiveness? If so, then are you listening and following the Spirit in your life? And Paul said in Galatians 5, if we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Then the third question is, if we're a follower of Jesus, are we embracing this new community, this third gift? Are we learning to break down, like in our life groups, are we learning to break down the differences between rich and poor? Right? Like in our life groups, we should have a mix of people be a mix of races, be a mix of socioeconomic. You know, the church of Jesus should be the place where rich and poor share life together, where people of different races share life together. We've all come from different religious backgrounds. We share life together. And this is why he's come. He came to restore not just the vertical, but the horizontal, and so Hey, what does that look like for you? Are you breaking down those barriers in your life? Are you living out his vision, the vision that's represented in communion? And then on top of that, are you pursuing community? Or are you just trying to go through your life as sort of a lone ranger Christian? Right? And for some of you, the Holy Spirit will be calling you as we talked about life groups today. Hey, it's... it's it's time to stop just attending the large group events. It's time to, to really dive into the body of Christ. It's time to connect. It's time to get to know some other believers and begin to do life together, pursue them together. And so I don't know where that, that hits you, but I'm just gonna throw, are you unwrapping the gifts of Christmas? And you know, today we're gonna be celebrating communion. And I don't know about you, but there's a sense of almost dissonance within me. Like I've never been to a Christmas service, at least personally, that we have celebrate communion, right? It's like, no, that's for Easter. That's for Good Friday, right? But as we've seen today, you can't separate them. That at Christmas, we celebrate Easter, and at Easter, we celebrate Christmas. It's one thing, it's one life, it's one reason. He came to bring gifts and he died to deliver them. It's the whole story. And so today we're gonna to be celebrating communion. And around the room, we have the communion tables with the elements on them. And during our time of worship, we're gonna encourage you as we stand and worship that you'd, you'd, if you're ready, when you're ready, that you'd go and you'd receive and just be a time of reflection, a time for you to seek the Lord in your own life. Maybe there's one of these Christmas gifts you need to start unwrapping. Uh, we encourage, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is definitely for you, right? We've seen that today. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we've seen you shouldn't take communion yet. You should wait until you give your life to Jesus. This is a family meal. But if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus and you want to give your life, no better way than to go to communion and to ask Jesus into your life and surrender, ask him to forgive your sins, to give you the gift of his spirit, and to teach you how to follow him in this new community. And so we're gonna to stand together at this point. And I'm gonna pray and we're gonna go into a time of worship, but I've asked the band to do something a little different. I've asked them during this time as we worship to lead us in one of my favorite Christmas carols. Because I think often when we think of Christmas carols, even though they're laced with references to his life and death and resurrection, we often associate them with just the birth. And as we sing this, one of my favorite Christmas carols, Oh, Come All You Faithful, I want you to hear that invitation from Jesus as he says in Revelation, 
Come, you're thirsty. Come and receive living water, right? Come to the, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that as we sing this today, it would fill us with new understanding and begin to break our paradigms of separation between Christmas and Easter. And that as we sing these Christmas carols this week, we'd remember what we're celebrating as we celebrate the birth of the one who came to give us gifts, the one who died to deliver them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Jesus, today we come to celebrate your birth. We come to celebrate a birth that led to death. That day that outside of those temple courts that you were dedicated in a short distance away, right outside the walls, that you would give your life to deliver these gifts, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of your spirit, the gift of the new community. And so, Lord, today we pray that we'd come, you would open our eyes to, to, to realize and understand these gifts of Christmas in a whole new dimension. As we come, we would give thanks, we would enter in, we would unwrap them as together as one body from all different races, all different religious backgrounds, different social economic places, as one body. We celebrate our unity in you as we take in your blood, we take in your body, this cup of thanksgiving for the gifts that you've given. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.